Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Six years on from Grenfell, we ask why housing is still in crisis. Labour pledges discount land sales for local authority house builders. RIBA calls for urgent action on crumbling hospitals, and how climate crisis could force a billion from their homes worldwide. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's UK architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Peter Apps. Peter is a journalist and author of the powerful account of the Grenfell disaster, Show Me the Bodies. Welcome to the show. Uh, nice to be here. Next Wednesday will mark the sombre milestone of six years since the Grenfell Tower fire, which tragically claimed the lives of 72 people and laid bare profound and systemic issues within the construction industry, regulatory frameworks and community engagement practices. The fire sparked rigorous investigations by the police, a public inquiry and coroner's inquests, shedding light on critical concerns surrounding the responses of the fire brigade, government agencies, deregulation, building inspections, fire safety systems and the utilisation of materials. The installation, sale and manufacturing of cladding materials emerged as an area of deep concern, magnifying the gravity of the situation. Rolling coverage of the inquiry revealed the scale of the cladding crisis, and despite the first phase of the inquiry recommending that dangerous ACM cladding be banned and removed from buildings, nearly 10,000 structures remain afflicted by unsafe cladding and other associated fire risks. Additionally, as the second phase of the inquiry nears its conclusion in autumn of this year, the absence of prosecutions and the lack of concrete assurances against the recurrence of a similar tragedy casts a shadow of uncertainty. In particular, writing in The Guardian last week, Phineas Harper cited an expert witness from the inquiry who cautioned that, quote, the overwhelming majority of people working as fire engineers have no qualifications in fire engineering. This underscoring campaigners' concerns that the safety and security of some of the most vulnerable in today's society continues to be gravely undervalued. Peter, you've been writing some of the most important reportage on Grenfell over the past six years, and you've also written a meticulous study of the events and consequences in your book, Show Me the Bodies. Six years on, what are some of the most concerning things arising from Grenfell which listeners should be aware of? Well, I mean, you covered a little bit in your intro the fact that there's still so many buildings out there with with potentially dangerous materials on their walls. Um, you know, we, 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 we started off by focusing just on the same material that was on Grenfell and just on high-rise buildings, but it's become apparent that there's there's other types of cladding that can cause dangerous fires and there's risks in buildings, 
below the kind of 18 metre cutoff that the government imposes. And we really haven't done enough even to really quantify how many of those buildings are really, really dangerous and make sure that they're fixed. It's been a kind of, you've probably seen it in the news, the sort of process where people can't get mortgages and they're they're struggling to get assessors to, to, to review them and all of that kind of thing. doesn't feel like there's been a really controlled, planned approach to, to finding the most dangerous buildings and fixing them. And then I think beyond that, there's still there's, uh, we still don't really have strategies for evacuating high-rise buildings, particularly if residents are disabled and um, we don't have fire alarms in lots of high-rises, we don't have sprinklers in most of them, so that lots of the gaps that existed six years ago that, that, that led us to, to, to the um, disaster at Grenfell Tower still exist, um, and I think that's a that's a position people wouldn't have accepted if they were told it six years ago. And the inquiry, how does that sort of fit into it in terms of the timescale? Is six years basically like no, there's been no prosecutions, nothing is happening? But should should we not have expected anything to have happened by this stage? I mean, the, the inquiry initially said it was going to be faster than it was, and they they initially said that they would be out of the way. I think they wanted to get done within a year or so. It took a lot longer. And some of that is because the story that emerged through the inquiry was bigger and more complicated than I think they first imagined it would be. Um, and so you wouldn't have wanted the inquiry to kind of leave stones unturned and um, not investigate the people who needed to be investigated. Nonetheless, in being so thorough, they have taken up a lot of time and the police investigation has been put on hold until that process is finished. The, the inquiry report won't publish until the start of next year at the earliest. And then there will be a, a period of delay from then um, before any prosecutions are brought. So we, we're probably looking, you know, it could be seven years, seven and a half years after the fire before people are actually arrested and held to account and that's that's an awful long time for the community to wait. When Grenfell happened I think a lot of people familiar with social housing had sort of experienced a sector which was very much felt like it was under siege for decades uh, like intensifying policies that weren't very supportive at all of the life of social housing residents people's on low income and then something like Grenfell happened and it felt like a kind of apex like this moment where you know it shows everything that was wrong about the system and the approach and the feeling that if something like this happens, finally people will wake up. Finally, culturally, attitudes will shift towards public housing. I mean, has has there been a cultural shift, even if there haven't been prosecutions? Like, have, have attitudes changed? Or is the same kind of thinking still evident, whether it's in policy or in businesses or in commissioners of projects like this? It would be wrong to say nothing at all has changed. Um... I think you do need to remember, I mean, quite a lot changed around the same time as, as, as the Grenfell Tower fire. We were kind of, um, we left behind the kind of David Cameron, George Osborne um, housing strategy, which was, as you've described, very aggressively targeting people's benefits, targeting, um, they wanted to, to sell off a lot of the council housing and those policies sort of disappeared in the aftermath of Grenfell. That wasn't just to do with Grenfell, but I don't think it was totally separate from it either. I think one of the most telling things for me is that you have this kind of race to the bottom in procurement and value engineering process that um, has been talked about a lot in the context of Grenfell Tower and you're actually now seeing that in the recladding work so if a building needs its dangerous cladding removed it gets tendered for 
goes to the lowest bidder and then value engineering decisions are made which undermine the safety of that recladding work and I, I don't really think there's a better you know example of how we haven't learned our lessons I don't I don't think it's changed the industry anything like as much as it should have done the Daily Mirror reported that victims of major tragedies like Grenfell are being failed uh, as government support continues to fall below what survivors require. Um, this comes as ministers have announced more people will have access to services like bereavement and trauma counselling or transport to and from court during trials. However, crucially, free legal help is not included in what the ministers are going to be offering. Um, Grenfell, how have Grenfell victims been treated across the past six years? And do you agree with critics who say government support does not go far enough? One of the things the inquiry process does show, and, and the criminal process as well, actually, is that these communities need their own legal representation. They need to have access to it. Like the, 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 For these processes to be fair and robust, you have to have... You know, you have to have equality of arms because the, the companies and the government departments that are under scrutiny are not going to cut back on their legal representation. And you have to, you have to give the people who suffers an, an equal an equal footing to fight that fight because it is a fight. Um, in terms of the support for the community, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter of public record now that kind of in the direct aftermath of the fire, they were really badly let down, really seriously let down. You had people um, who didn't even have a place to sleep, um, sleeping rough, sleeping in cars and in parks and stuff the night after the fire. People who had no information on whether or not their um, their loved ones were alive or dead and didn't, didn't have confirmation for weeks. There's so much that needs to be done. There's so much support that is needed. I don't know about every case, but certainly I've heard from people who don't feel like it's been adequate and feel like they've had to constantly repeat their trauma in order to justify getting help. Um, and that's the wrong way to treat a community like that. I think it should just be offered, given what's happened, with no questions asked, really. If you need it, it's there. Um you know, but I also I think coming back to the previous point you made, I think if, if, if what people want, some people want at least is closure, and and that will come from justice, and 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 all the time that's denied, it's going to be very hard to talk about recovery and moving on. Now, Construction News reported this week that life-saving building safety information mandated after Grenfell is at risk of being lost amid a lack of digital standardisation in the construction industry. I mean, gosh, that sounds like we're already lost just through that sentence. But, you know, this is actually the sort of um, the finer detail of construction, right? So the Hackett report identified a need for a so-called golden thread of information. Uh, and that will apply for high-risk residential buildings to ensure safety data is gathered, stored and maintained throughout the building's life cycle. You know, for comparison, there's a lot of buildings out there. You know, the documents are probably in some archive somewhere and those buildings are beautiful buildings doing a good purpose, but no one quite has all the information they need about how safe they are. Um, so, Peter, can you unpack what this may mean practically uh, when it comes to the construction of new buildings, the fact that this golden thread is being blurred by all these digital tools we use in the construction industry. Um, and how big a deal is it that this thread is at, at risk of being lost? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, not just not just about Grenfell Tower, but about all of the, the thousands and tens of thousands of other buildings that, that have come under scrutiny in the, the six years since the fire. It's extraordinarily difficult to answer basic questions about what materials are on their walls, who who made that product, is it safe, isn't it safe, 
what should it have looked like? All of these kind of basic bits of information um, were, were very, very difficult, in the, certainly in the first few years afterwards, for residents, for local authorities who were trying to enforce the rules to get their hands on. So the construction industry is a sign that it's had this long historic problem with just getting the basic information on a building from hand to hand to hand so that everybody can see it and understand it. I think the construction industry has always been resistant to change. I think it's an industry that, that, that works... It works from muscle memory. They do things in the way that they've always been done. And um, a lot of these kind of low margin industries where there's a lot of pressure to kind of get... keep the cost low and get the um get today's um sums of money through through the books as quickly as possible it's very hard to kind of stop and change one of these industries to say hey actually we need to impose new technology we need to start doing new we need to start implementing new practices on site about how we record and share information the focus isn't on that it's on Let's get this site moving so we can sign this off and, and, and book another job and move on to the next one. And that's a, it's been a big problem with construction. You know, I, I hope there is a there's a there's a new building safety regulator which is is sort of slowly winding into action. Um, and I hope that that some tighter regulation will help that. But certainly, it's a worry if if we're, we're at kind of really the the early stages of this new regime, and if people aren't managing to record the information clearly at this point, then you do worry for the future. And despite the importance of competent fire engineering strategies, it seems Britain still has an astonishingly uh, low level of professionals qualified in the field. So in a recent Guardian article, Open City Chief Executive Phineas Harper quoted Jose Torreo, a fire engineering specialist at UCL and Grenfell Tower inquiry expert witness, um, who said that, quote, the overwhelming majority of people practicing as fire engineers in Britain have no qualifications in fire engineering. The quote goes on, more than 30 years of expertise being lost from this field has resulted in a situation where people without any experience are making all the decisions in fire engineering. Okay, Peter, how did we get to this situation in which even now decisions about fire safety are being made by people without the right qualifications? What should be done, if anything? I mean, it's it's a it's a big problem. Fire engineer isn't a protected professional status in the same way as, say, a solicitor or a doctor would be, where you can only call yourself that if you've um, registered with a certain body and have certain qualifications. So, yeah, I mean, any, anybody can legally call themselves a fire engineer. Also, I mean, to do a fire risk assessment of a high-rise building, you don't even need to be a, you don't even need to be calling yourself a fire engineer. You you could be any. I I could do it. I mean, you could do it, and you you know you could go out. And that's and, of a high-rise building, high not rise just building, a Victorian yeah. conversion. Yeah, the, natural. The, the, it's up to the responsible person who owns that building to appoint a, 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 a suitably um, a suitable expert. But it's up to them to decide what suitable means. And there's no rules around who is suitable. The, the guy who risk assessed Grenfell Tower was a um, retired firefighter who'd sort of, d- during his time as a firefighter, he'd reviewed some other people's risk assessments. He'd, he'd, he'd done, I think, two weeks of training, something in that order, um, to, to set himself up as a fire risk assessor. He was a sole trader with 650 buildings in, in Kensington and Chelsea to look at. And it, it came out through the inquiry that he was copying and pasting between different assessments. For example, his assessment of Grenfell Tower said that the, the, the balconies and pigeon netting didn't pose a fire risk, and Grenfell had neither. 
bal- balconies or pigeon netting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's always as if they were hoping no one would read the document. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but the, 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 the government, this was actually a 2005 legislation brought in under the, the new Labour government. And at, at the time, they, they said they didn't want to impose burdens on industry by, by making requirements for um, qualifications. They said that it would be a consultant's charter, I think, doing that. And um, there was, there was, it, it, we went through this in quite a lot of detail at the inquiry, actually. There was consistent lobbying from the London Fire Brigade, from National Fire Chiefs Council, from various other um, interested bodies, you know, not kind of like radical groups, but, but Fire firefighting organisation saying we need higher levels of competence in fire risk assessment at every stage. I think the Mayor of London was lobbying for that as well. At every stage, the um, the Home Office or the Department for Housing and Communities, which you know sort of pinballed the responsibility for fire safety, knocked it back and just said no, it's too much of a burden on industry. It's too too costly. It's not something we want to do. And that hasn't changed. And I think that the the, the What's particularly worrying about that now is that the way that we've set up the new system places even more responsibility on these people. Um, People who are fire engineers or fire risk assessors are the ones who make decisions about whether buildings need to be remediated or not. And that's a very difficult decision to make, which has serious consequences either way. If you say it does need to be remediated, people can't sell their homes, they can't get mortgages until it's done. And you have to find someone who's going to spend a few million quid um, fixing it. If you say it doesn't need to be remediated, then this building is going to be deemed safe for generations of people to live in and it's going to have to withstand fires or there's going to be a disaster. And so you're asking this industry, which has a huge skills shortage, a huge lack of competency, to effectively take these decisions themselves and the government guidance really doesn't is not prescriptive in which buildings should be fixed and which shouldn't it leaves that discretion down to the professional but they haven't done anything to kind of lift professional standards to a degree where we can assure ourselves that the people making those decisions are competent and i don't it doesn't sound to me like a recipe for success the AJ reported on a high-profile private housing block in Agar Grove, North London, recently after it was deemed not fit for purpose less than six years after completion. Michael Gove has reportedly offered the leaseholders living at 53 Agar Grove in Camden a meeting about their new build properties, which residents claim costs between £700 and £900,000 and which they fear could now be worthless. This is a story that's been sort of covered even on the television news with images of these homes falling apart at the seams. Um, Peter, what's the significance of a story as shocking as this arising six years after Grenfell? Um, I mean, I guess the homes are six years old. Um, But also, how does the government's handling of these housing issues related to sort of homeowners and leaseholders differ from the treatment given to social housing tenants? It's an interesting question. I think it 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 shows what it shows is is some of the things we've been talking about already. um, That there is still a lack of accountability in the construction industry. There still are these kind of systemic issues with. construction quality and oversight and regulation which result in dangerous buildings being built it also shows that other other things aren't working as well as they should like the warranty system you know it's all new homes come with a warranty of 10 years what why does that not function well enough to you know if you buy a buy a, a laptop that doesn't work you can you you have a process by which you can get some redress for that and it just doesn't seem to function properly in the housing sector so that's something that needs to be looked at in terms of the, the the second part of your question about the difference between how social housing residents and how leaseholders are treated, I think I think that really the difference I, I would say is, is is there's a difference between people who have managed to generate 
enough media attention are treated and people haven't quite reached that stage yet. As soon as something becomes a political embarrassment, yeah, you might have a meeting with a minister and you might have a couple of Zoom calls and the civil servant's going to tell you that they're going to take your case very seriously. But if I understand this story correctly, I think these people were, were fruitlessly trying to raise this issue for years without getting anywhere. So and certainly I've come across many leaseholders in private housing who have been treated pretty awfully um, by, by every level of the system. You know, equally, that's true of social housing residents as well. And I think that the, the, the sad thing is that th- that only, again only really changes when they get on the TV news and there's a, there's a bit of a bit of a, a storm kicked up about it. And you know, that's not really the way it should be. That's that's not a, a sensible, <laughs> coherent way of structuring how uh, how you prioritise which complaints are listened to and how people can get their voices heard. Yeah, certainly, if you're in social housing, is one of the galling things that the legacy of Grenfell is leaseholders, people buying into the sort of property ladder, property boom bubble, getting like wall-to-wall coverage on all the on all the, all the media outlets. Meanwhile, something like the social housing bill has just been like scrapped and no one cares. And like, you know, there's no, like, where's the public housing that we need? Like, if we just started building it, then surely that would take an enormous amount of pressure off it and also change public perceptions of it. Stop demonizing public housing tenants. Um, but instead it's, you know, the whole, sto- whole story is about, Leaseholders who are worried that their their wealth ladder is going to evaporate. I mean, I would push back on that a little bit. I I, I think part of the reason why leaseholders got became the sort of centre of the the, the the cladding scandal story is because if you, if you're a social housing tenant, you you wouldn't be being sent a service charge bill to fix the block. You, 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 your landlord might not be doing enough to deal with it, but they're not going to be billing you for it. I mean, you, you, you sort of pay for it over a long period of time through your rents, but your rents are, are regulated in the social housing sector, so they're not going to be shooting up in order to cover the, the, the cost of recladding the building. And that's not the case for leaseholders. What happened straight after the fire was if dangerous cladding was found in a building the leaseholder's got a bill to remove it. And that bill could be six or seven figures. So people were facing bankruptcy and they had no recourse. They went to tribunals. They went to, um, uh, you know, they tried to find judicial reviews, human rights law. Nothing was was, was getting them out of that situation. They were just going to have to pay. And so they were, they really were in a really precarious position. And it took years and years of campaigning to get that um, that that ridiculous situation where the, the people who lived in the unsafe building were the ones who were going to pay to fix it um, reverse. So I, I think on, on one level, I kind of understand that the question you, you're asking, and I agree with it, in that, that sometimes this becomes a property story and it becomes about property values. And, and you you know people who don't have that kind of property interest in the story do get sidelined a little. I, I probably wouldn't go so far as to sort of say... Um, I think there were there were leaseholders were in a in a in a very difficult situation before the the protections came in and and many of them remain in that position despite that. So there's a reason why that focus came on, which it wasn't all just kind of we have a prioritise in the wrong place. Also, the social housing regulation bill did um did actually make it through in the end. <laughs> there was talk of it getting scrapped under Liz Trust, but that 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 thankfully didn't come to pass. Finally, one of the slogans which have been repeated again and again over the past six years is the phrase "never again." Uh, what assurances do people have that something like this will never happen again? I mean, not many, frankly. I mean, I think you can you can break down if you if you, you're being a little bit reductive. But there's there, there were three really critical factors in the Grenfell Tower fire: um, dangerous cladding, um, in, internal defects, primarily self-closing devices and fire doors which failed and then a, a, a complete absence of an evacuation strategy to get everyone out once those failures had occurred and yeah, you know, I wrote a piece last year for the fifth year anniversary 
all of those three failures still exist are the buildings and and not just a small number but lots of them and not only that there's other f- issues out there you know we've seen big 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 timber frame fires we've seen um some modular construction buildings lost completely to 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 fire and you know we still have pitifully small numbers of sprinklers and fire alarms in high-rise buildings so the, the the conditions for Grenfell could exist somewhere else, and 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 that's a very, it's it's a it's sound. I wish that was hyperbole, but it's unfortunately not. Um, and we do, you know, these things are, are thankfully they're low probability because you need a lot of things to go wrong for a disaster like Grenfell to happen. And so you, you might keep getting lucky and and not see it happen again. But can we guarantee that it's never going to happen again? No. The opposition Labour Party has outlined plans to allow local authorities to buy land cheaply in a bid to deliver more affordable housing. This was reported by The Guardian last week. Uh, In a pursuit of a pro-building agenda to be implemented, if victorious, in the general election next year, Labour has pledged to introduce legislation that would grant councils the authority to purchase land for development purposes. It would mean they wouldn't incur the exorbitant so-called hope value, which is an expensive premium granted to land on which developers hope to secure planning permission. The pledge has emerged in the wake of Labour leader Keir Starmer's recent announcement that he would streamline construction on Greenbelt land, an initiative that garnered criticism for both Conservatives and some members within his own party. A spokesperson for Labour said, quote, We want to rebalance the power between landowners and local communities. We want local areas to capture a lot more of the value that is created when you build on land nearby. The principle is to tilt the balance of power, which now is tilted towards landowners and not communities, end quote. Peter, what do you make of Labour's plans to change the way in which local authorities are able to procure land? Do you think it will help get house building close or anywhere near to the 300,000 homes annually that the country desperately needs being completed? I think what what it will do is hopefully, if it works, make the development of social housing in um, high value areas more viable. Um, because one of the primary difficulties you have to build a social rented housing development is that you have to pay an awful lot of money up front for the land and once that money's been paid then in order to make that that scheme viable with affordable rents genuinely affordable rents you need to put an enormous amount of grant in to 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 balance that out um if you could get the land cheaper you then would be able to viably build social rented housing with lower levels of grant and therefore it, it might do a lot of good in areas where that is the that is the reason that we don't have social housing being built and that is that is quite a lot of areas and it's areas where that stuff is much needed i think that in terms of overall housing supply if you build private housing on a site where you got the land cheaply i don't think that private house builders it's not within their business model to then sell those homes more cheaply they'll sell them at whatever the market dictates they can sell them at and they'll take a bigger profit margin so i I don't think the reasons that that housing is very expensive and the reason that uh, we don't have enough housing being built is necessarily because land costs so much i think that I think that that's you know it comes down to sort of delays in the planning system. It comes down to to, to the various other elements of the the house building model, um, which aren't working. But th- th- what this could do is where local authorities want to to get a site to use for social housing, it's it's a tool in their arsenal to make that 
make the sum stack up. And as a result, I think it's a good thing. Now, what's really defined housing policy is, is that we've had a housing crisis for decades. We've had lots of talk about solving it, which has always resulted in some kind of like small thing which does not actually resolve the bigger problem, right? Mm. 300,000 homes need to be delivered annually. We're hearing from the Labour Party this policy, this policy proposal, which I'm hearing from you is, is just a small thing that probably isn't going to get to the 300,000 that we actually need. What do we actually need to have a real housing policy that gives us the 300,000? Because with all the complexity, with all the controversy, it sounds like the only way is some kind of statutory, government-mandated, large-scale house-building programme. In, in the sort of post-war history of, of Britain, we've only really ever got close to those numbers when we've been building large amounts of council housing. The private market will will deliver a level of housing. But I don't think you can just you can just keep keep ramping up private house building and expect to get anywhere close to three hundred thousand. You have to do that and deliver large amounts of social and affordable housing. And that's important as well because, you know, three hundred thousand homes a year Nobody expects that to take house prices down to a level where they're affordable very fast. It's not really how the the house building market operates. It would more stabilise house prices than actively reduce them, certainly in the short to medium term. If you want to house people who currently can't afford housing, which is a lot of people, you have to be asking what the tenure of those 300,000 homes is going to be as well. so to get to the level of supply we need and to get to the um uh to actually kind of provide housing for people who currently aren't able to access it i think you need to be looking at not just a target for 300,000 homes overall but i i, I think the target i think labor should adopt and this is kind of um well all all political parties should adopt and it's it's supported by various think tanks and and, and other organizations is 100,000 social rented homes a year so a million social rented homes over 10 years um that would start to kind of make up the deficit of the amount that we've lost through the right to buy and through demolitions and all kinds of other things and start to address the people can move into social housing when they need housing, uh, when they're in housing need, that reduces pressure on the private rented sector. So that reduces private rented sector rents. And as private rented sector rents reduce, maybe more people can move into, can afford to buy. Um, if if there's less of a kind of hot demand for, for private rented housing, um, you don't have buy-to-let landlords kind of coming into the market so much and driving the price up because people can can house themselves through social housing. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think that the the, the answer to all of these things, and I, I probably would say this, but um, is 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 to invest once more in in a genuine national program of social social rented house building. Our IBA president, Simon Alford, has called on the government to take serious action in response to concerns about NHS England's crumbling estate. This was reported by the AJ this week. Alford, who is responding to a recent £20 billion funding package for up to 45 hospital projects, acknowledged the magnitude of the problem meant a more robust commitment was needed from central government to urgently fix facilities. According to the Department for Health, many of the buildings to benefit from the money were constructed using reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, that's RAAC, a material that has reached the end of its lifespan. Why on earth would you ever build hospitals from a material that has a a short lifespan? (laughs) Anyway, um, the department openly admitted that the material, quote, deteriorates significantly beyond this point, thereby posing substantial risks to patients and staff if not rebuilt by 2030. 
While the Conservative Party's 2019 general election manifesto famously pledged to, quote, build and fund 40 new hospitals over the next 10 years, recent reports from The Guardian indicate an impending announcement from the Health Secretary signalling a considerable delay in the delivery. These delays are now expected to extend beyond 2030, raising concern among critics. Um, Sources told The Guardian that the government has long been prepared to make the delay announcement. However, apprehension over potential backlash from Tory MPs has repeatedly deferred the announcement. Uh, In response, the government has assured that the five hospitals predominantly constructed with RAAC will receive priority attention in addition to the two already identified. Um, Regrettably, the government has conceded that the eight of the pledged rebuilds will not be completed by the originally planned deadline of 2030. Um, So, Peter, why is this latest upcoming announcement about delaying new hospital work so worrying? Uh, What is the potential risk here? You know, if you start talking about structural stability, where there's been issues, I think there's been quite quite widespread issues with problems with concrete in, in the Republic of Ireland. It's very hard to remediate. It's very hard to put interim measures in place to make something safe. And it's it it's only going to get worse <laughs> the longer it's left not dealt with. And you can't really tolerate that in a hospital because I guess if you've got one block of housing where you find there's an issue with structural stability, you move everybody out, you put them in temporary housing for a little while and then you rehouse them, blocks demolished and rebuilt. And that's a very hard, very traumatic process. But if you think about, well, how, how does that work if this is the one hospital in a county or a medium-sized city, what do you do with everyone in ICU when they need to be moved out? And we, you know, quite famously don't have enough hospital beds anyway. So this is a looming crisis. And if, you know, I don't, I, like I say, I'm not an expert in this 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 type of construction or the exact state of these hospitals, but it's plainly something where they need to act before they're forced to act. And I'm not sure I hear that urgency from the facts that you just read out there. Yeah, not least because obviously 2030 is potentially a different government or two different governments down yeah. down the line. I mean, um, yeah, we're hearing that after 2030, there's significant risk these buildings facing collapse. Um, we know that in recent decades, government has operated in an era of, of quite low interest rates. Like, you know, this is a, a predicted problem that anyone with a kind of strategy and any kind of sense of responsibility um, could put their whole business plan around and sort of do something clever. It hasn't happened, okay? Why was nothing done when times were good during that period of what was basically austerity? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a much broader question, that, isn't it? Why, why have we gone through a period of historically low interest rates when we weren't investing in our infrastructure and we're now reaching one of higher interest rates where we suddenly are? And it's, not, um, it's not fantastic economic planning. Um, what so, about that long-term economic plan? We yeah, was uh, <laughs> was don't I mean don't effectively yeah like you say I mean if if we'd have if we'd have had a, a, a different attitude to the amount we could borrow and invest in the 2010s periods of, of, of low interest rates it would have cost everybody a lot less money to get this work done the work is still going to need to be done it's a big problem in our politics isn't it stuff stuff that happens outside the current news cycle is hard to focus on stuff that happens outside the current electoral cycle is almost impossible to get political attention for A groundbreaking study recently highlighted by The Guardian has underscored the alarming repercussions of global heating, predicting that a staggering 2 billion people will be forcibly displaced from the climate niche in which humanity can flourish. 
Unprecedented temperatures and extreme weather events will expose these populations to inhospitable conditions in which very few populations have survived in the past. The study, based on current global action plans and the projected 2.7 degrees Celsius of heating, paints a grim picture of a future where 2 billion people will endure average temperatures of 29 degrees Celsius or higher. As a consequence, the scientists behind the research anticipate a staggering 1 billion individuals could migrate to cooler climates. They added that if global temperature rise was kept to below 1.5 degrees of warming, 80% fewer people would be driven outside of the climate niche. That equates to about 400 million people. The study is the first of its kind and is able to treat every citizen equally, unlike past analyses which have been weighted towards economic costs, and reveals the scale of the crisis facing countries like India and Nigeria, which have huge populations in already warm climates. Professor Tim Lenton, who led the research, said, quote, The cost of global warming are often expressed in financial terms, but our study highlights the phenomenal human cost of failing to tackle the climate emergency. Economic estimates almost always value the rich more than the poor because they have more assets to lose, and they tend to value those alive now over those living in the future. We're considering all people as equal in this study. Um, so, Peter, this study highlights the scale of climate migration, which is yet to come if we continue on this uh, environmentally destructive path. Um, what is the potential impact of this on planet Earth and, and how must how must we adapt? Obviously, you know, the reductions that we need to in order to hit a 1.5 degree target are um, sort of re retreating with every day that goes by. And it's just another sign that missing that target would have serious consequences, which will be felt years down the line within our lifetimes. I mean, I think one of the things that, that stands out to me from that is that a lot of the a lot of the talk about what we need to do about climate change and um, the sort of future that we're heading towards involve either things that we need to do to cut emissions, and that's that's obviously really important, and things that we need to do to kind of adapt our societies to a hotter world. So you know, higher flood barriers and you know other other forms of adaptation. But it's very rarely talked about how does the world equitably cope with the larger amount of migration. That that is 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 going to even in a 1.5 degree scenario, I think you said 400 million people potentially on the move, and an honest conversation globally about well, who, where do these people go? They need to come to more temperate climates. You know, one of the big future problems in this country is an aging population. So there are ways in which you could see younger people wanting to move here as a good thing, <laughs> um, but it doesn't seem like that that it doesn't feature very much in the in the sort of global political conversation about climate change is how do we allow migration to happen in a way that is as good as it possibly can be and it's ideal for people presumably not to leave their home because they're being forced out by um extreme heat but if they're going to have to go how do we make that work without you know people dying crossing the mediterranean in dinghies um and yeah, it's it's a conversation the world doesn't want to have. But it's, it, it, if it doesn't, then it's it's just going to find it has to deal with it as a crisis. 
I mean, certainly with this study, it's like even the, the minimum case scenario appears to be 400 million people having to move. And it's not just, you know, that's not a simple process of people getting on a train and going to another place. I mean, this is in the context of enormous environmental destruction, all kinds of disasters. Um, is you know, Imagine like the scenes you're seeing in Ukraine on the television, you know, this, this kind of level of upheaval and flooding and destruction. I mean, it's quite an extreme scenario that people will have to live through if, if this comes to bear or if it comes to bear in a way that that we societies are not able to respond to in a kind of proactive way. Um, certainly, we've had so many major things happen which we've been told would happen and we haven't planned for. We just talked about the crumbling hospitals. We know housing provision has never met anticipated population growth in this country. Yeah, as a journalist specialising in housing, what are your thoughts on how the world could respond to a scenario involving these hundreds of millions of people being displaced and needing rehousing? Um, are we talking futuristic cities up in the highlands of Scotland, like halfway up a mountain? And you know, what what is? I mean, is is there an is there is there an architectural solution, or is or is that a kind of fantasy escapism, and people should be yeah focusing on doing the right thing now as much as they can? It is possible to build large amounts of comfortable housing very fast. The technology to do that exists. You know, I've I've, I've sometimes been sceptical of modular housing, but it, it tends to be when people kind of build thirty or forty story tower blocks and 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 don't necessarily ask difficult questions about fire safety. But to 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 build, you could build a, a comfortable modular city pretty fast. I mean, the the, the questions are not really. It's like with all the questions about climate change, really, and it's not really do we have the means to deal with this. It's do we have the will to deal with it. Do we are we going to do do right by these people when they arrive at international borders? And then are we going to what's going to happen politically if we say, well, look, four hundred million people are on the move globally. We we one million of those people want to live in the UK, and we're going to build a city for them uh, somewhere in the Midlands. Um, or not just to build a city for them, but we're going to we're going to up we're going to we're going to up our provision of housing in order to accommodate them because the the, the world is no longer hospitable enough for them to to live where they 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 were born. You're going to run into political problems. You know we we you can see that you can already see it. It's effectively what is already happening. That's already the world we live in, and. So yeah, I mean, so the the the, the 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 questions are never can we deal with it? Like the questions are, do we want to deal with it, and and are we willing to, and do we have political systems that are willing to? We're now on to the culture section, um, things that are coming up on the cultural radar. So firstly, uh, we've got the next instalment of the Academy of British Housing, brought to you by Open City. We're going to be visiting. Poundbury, a day-long visit on Friday the 16th of June in the company of architectural historians and critics, uh, giving a critical evaluation of the successes and shortcomings of the place, uh, a moment when the UK faces an intense need for ambitious new live and work settlements. Uh, it's going to be led by the architectural historian Matthew Lloyd Roberts. There's going to be a group discussion over lunch and then a walking crit with the architect Ross Sharp and the townscape consultant Sarah Jackson. Um, Pete, have you had a chance to visit Poundbury? Is this is this the the new model city of the future that the UK I needs? I haven't, but I'm, I'm fascinated too. Sounds like a really interesting exhibition. Come along and join us next Friday. Um, tickets are available on the website. Um, in London, uh, in Serpentine uh, Gallery has opened the 2023 Serpentine Pavilion by Lena Gottmer. The temporary summer structure in Kensington Gardens is the 22nd in the gallery's ongoing series of annual architectural commissions, uh, which began way back in the year 2000 with Zaha Hadid, who designed the pavilion. The free-to-visit structure opens to the public on Friday, 9th of June. Um, 
Pete, have you had a chance to check it out? I haven't either, but another one yeah. for the list. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting, interesting space, although I do rather feel... Um, the focus should now be on housing rather than more cultural facilities, which London seems to have like no shortage of. Uh, Pete, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on Lundown. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, where can listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing and your publishing, uh, their websites or social media handles? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Pete Apps and I'm, I write mostly for Inside Housing. So if you're interested in social housing policy, then InsideHousing.co.uk um, is a place to find out some things about it. And the book is available in all good bookshops. It on, sure is. Online and physical. Show me the bodies, um, how we let Grandfell happen. Thanks, Pete. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.